Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. It is a great joy of mine today to talk with a man that I have learned a lot from, really enjoyed his book last year, Reenchanting Humanity. And I am talking to Dr. Owen Strain today. Dr. Dr. Strain, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Jared, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I, I need to do something probably everybody does. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly because I'm sure I, I've, I've called you Dr. Strachan, Dr. Strains. I, I, let, me, <laughs> let me just ask, is it Dr. Strain? Yeah. Hey, one, that was one take, man. Good. I may, hey, I may have to edit that out and just act like I got it right the first time. <laughs> All right. For those who don't know you, most of the people listening to this are going to know who you are, at least have heard of you or something like that. But for those who don't know, would you go ahead and just bring us up to speed who you are, tell us a little bit about your family and then what it is that you do? Yeah. Uh, I'm not known to many, that's for sure. Uh, what I am is a theology professor in Kansas City, Missouri at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a husband to Bethany and the father of three young kids who have all transitioned out of the baby and toddler years and are now mostly school age, so that's exciting. And uh, I, write, I write some books. Uh, I speak some at churches or at conferences. Um, I'm originally from Maine. I'm a big Boston Celtics fan, New England sports teams fan, which I have learned in traveling the regions of this hallowed country is not the most popular thing ever. Uh, but basically, yeah, I'm just a born-again Christian who, is, who has been drafted into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the warrior savior, and uh, I'm trying to make my tiny, tiny little dent in the universe for his glory. Fantastic. I love it. We got young kids at the house as well. We got a six-year-old uh, boy, a six-year-old son, a two-year-old son, and we got a little girl on the way, and so we're pretty, pretty excited about that. Now, I've got a, some friends that take you for a couple classes. Uh, Jason Algood wanted to ask who your favorite PhD student is. Um, <laughs> uh, Cal Callison had a couple things to say. And then Kale Favre used to be an intern at our church. And uh, I found out that you love rapping, apparently, and that you sure. enjoy playing basketball. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your rapping history? And, uh, <laughs> yes. and then tell us, did you play high school basketball? Why, why do you love basketball so much? Both pursuits are covered in glory, as you would <laughs> Uh, I got into rap when I was in college because where, and I loved poetry in high school. And so with the additional challenge of rhyming at the end of the line, I, I took a stab at it and just found it a really fun medium uh, of, of creativity and uh, tried to be a witness in some, some humble little rap songs that I recorded. So uh, I remember that primarily with nostalgia, nothing more. But uh, basketball, similar terms, played in, played in high school, got recruited to play at a couple small main colleges, did not play in college, but uh, have a very strong passion for basketball that is now presently waning uh, as I begin approaching the door uh, of middle age. I'm not there yet. I've got a few more years. But, you know, you get up there into your late 30s, as I am, and uh, you're at the Y, you know, with the high school kids. And you still have the drive right. and you still have some of the skill uh, if, you've, if you've worked at it and maintained it. But honestly, the, the quick burst, the fast twitch instincts really do go. Yeah. Everyone knows this, of course, but I have found it to be the, the case for myself as well. So uh, I'm, 
Uh, yeah, now I'm doing, now I do a lot of running with, uh, with the pandemic. I'm here in Missouri, so we have open space, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I've just done a lot of running. So now I'm doing boring, uh, sort of established guy stuff, not the exciting burst experience things of my youth. Yes, I'm, I'm inching closer to 40. I, I turn 37 next month, and I have been relegated to running for about the last seven or eight years. And so if I went out on the basketball court, I ate, drank, slept basketball growing up, played mm -hmm. in high school as well. And mm -hmm. so if I went out on a basketball court right now, I think my, my knees would pop, my, my bones would jump out of the skin. I think it would be, it would be bad news. But I just yeah. run in straight lines, and that works out pretty good. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, talk academia for a minute. So you're, you've been an academic now for I don't know how long, but why don't you tell us how, how you got into being a professor. I know you were at, Su at Southern for a while before you ended up at Midwestern. So tell us about your route into academia. Yeah, I'm kind of an accidental professor. I was training to be a pastor. I trained under Mark Dever at Capitol Hill in D.C. in 2003, way back in 2003, and was planning to be a professor, went to Southern for my MDiv, um, then went to Trinity for my PhD in 2008, and again, was still planning to be a pastor theologian, hopefully. But I got a, a call uh, from Burke to come teach at Boyce, uh, an invitation in 2010. And uh, I, had a, I had a young child, and I wasn't quite in a season where it, the, the pastor thing was coming to fruition. And so we went back to Louisville in uh, summer 2010, and I started teaching at Boyce and Summit Southern as well, did that for five years. And then got the call out here to Midwestern under Jason Allen in 2015. And I've been doing this now for five years. This is the start of my sixth year at Midwestern. So um, I didn't set out with a goal of being a professor. I'm not from a ministry family by background. Uh, my father was a forester in Maine. So he walked the woods of Maine for a living. My mom was a librarian. Um, but I did grow up in a small Baptist church and heard the gospel preached and went to a strong Christian summer camp and some of these things that win, help win many of us to faith in Christ. So all that to say, I didn't have an existing paradigm either really of pastoral ministry in terms of what I experienced or certainly of teaching. Mm -hmm. Nobody I knew in Maine was a Christian professor right. uh, at a school, but God has seen fit to direct me this way. And I'm really thankful he has. And there's a lot of challenges in it that I like. Um, and there are a lot of uh, blessings in it. And uh, so here I am. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's talk about a challenge of the academic world, specifically with training up or raising up pastors who go to seminary. Seminary, I've seen Midwestern's blown up over the last few years. I did my undergraduate work in a Pentecostal college in Southeast Tennessee. I didn't go to seminary after that. So I've got a youth, youth ministry degree and just went right into pastoral ministry. So I've been plugging away for, for a little over a decade now. And I don't plan on returning to school, but there are more and more pastors I see that are going into seminary. And one of the, my buddies, you might have known him from online, Brian Sauvey, uh, he makes some, uh, some splashes on Twitter every once in a while where his tweets blow up and, and then there's uh, massive fires and, and it goes a little crazy for a minute. But he said, ask Dr. Strand how it is that a pastor can go into seminary and this is the world in which you swim. How is it that he can be asked to go to seminary and to ask his wife to work and to be doing this heavy load for, for several years and then be expected to go into pastoral ministry after he has functionally been required to, borderline required to, disqualify his family for ministry for the last four or five years? So can there be a better path or 
what is the path that a man can stay qualified through uh, pastoral or through educational training before pastoring a church by not asking his wife and not disqualifying their family in the process? Yeah, there's a lot there to think through. A lot of it depends upon situation and context, as I, I see it. Okay. So the traditional paradigm of seminary has been uh, a young man has a call uh, to teach and preach the word of God. So right after college, typically in America anyway, in recent years, he goes to seminary. Maybe he gets married just before seminary. Let's just pretend that's the case. And so he and his wife are new in their marriage. He's working on this degree in the traditional model. And in my view, there's some freedom in a scenario like that, where I don't think a couple, for example, in my worldview, which is soaked in complementarity, hopefully of a biblical kind, I don't think they have to start having kids right away, personally. Mm -hmm. They could, nothing bad about that, but they also may not. They may take a year or two, something like this, uh, determining it, if God allows, and have, a, have, have children then, which allows them to get launched as a couple, allows him to make hay in his studies, and then the kids maybe do start coming in, and mm -hmm. then he has kind of a different set of cir circumstances where, yes, he really does need to shoulder provision full-time now and prosecute his studies mm -hmm. and be a churchman, which is no easy thing. It's no mean thing for a young man to do. I don't personally have a major issue with that kind of scenario. Right. I don't think a couple has to jump into having children as soon as they possibly can. Some people do have that conviction who very much share a lot of my worldview. And if, if so, if that's the way the Lord leads, praise God. Mm -hmm. If God does give the blessing of children at any time, in my view, then really the guy does have to shift from whatever gear he's into fifth gear. Mm -hmm. And now he really is living a kind of uh, tightrope life right. where, where he needs to win at home first and, and for he needs to, to know the Lord and, and have a strong devotional life. Then he needs to win at home. He needs to be a churchman. He needs to provide for his family. So my goal would be for young men, the young men I train and counsel here at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, not to get into those kind of difficult circumstances that your friend Brian is talking about and mm -hmm. rightly identifying as a real issue. My goal is for guys to do what they can, uh, let's say when kids are, are not there. It's not that they're not providing for their wife in that season, don't misunderstand me, but it is mm -hmm. that they have, they have some more freedom in that season and they can, they can figure things out a little differently. And then when kids really do come, and mom needs to be at home, and the biblical design for mom raising those kids and nurturing the home and these sorts of things really clicks into place in a, in a full-fledged way, then mm -hmm. yes, dude, whatever he needs to do, working tr a trade, working at Home Depot, working at Starbucks, mm -hmm. uh, working an office job, uh, pulling back from his education, uh, his training that he got that he's not necessarily still seeking to be you know let's say he did a business degree in mm -hmm. college but he really does want to be a pastor he does perceive that call well maybe he uses those business skills for a time to be a full-time provider for his family my goal in all this jared there's a lot of gray area right is to say we have some flexibility at least some guys do mm -hmm. but then yes i'm going to very much affirm that a guy should not be practicing as much as is possible uh an unbiblical model of provision yeah while he's in seminary. There, there is gray area here, though. 
uh, even as I lay that out. Well, that's helpful as well. I mean, there's so many different options now with seminary, and I know with online work that you can do that if it's required, you can pursue your degree over a five-year period, over a 10-year period, and be committed to the long long view and not get yourself into a precarious situation to where everybody's looking around you and your family's just falling apart. And so using the wisdom that God has given to, to, to pursue what you want to pursue in a way that doesn't disqualify you was, would be obvious, you know, wisdom and, and prudence lived out. Yeah. And that's exactly right. That's very well said. Um, you can do a lot of things to adjust your situation too, whether mm-hmm. you're in seminary or not, you can adjust with seminary class load, uh, you can adjust your hours at work. Um, you can scale things back. You can scale things up. So there's a lot of freedom. But I am going to be a complementarian voice, hear me very clearly, that is urging, yes, even young men to prepare themselves for the, the joyful burden of provision for a family. Mm-hmm. And then especially when married and kids come, activate the agent, man. And the agent yep. is you. <laughs> so yep. get to work. That's good. That's good. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. And let's talk about some of the work that you've been really in for several years. But you, I think you have rightly identified in your work, Reenchanting Humanity, you, you identified the, the issue of the, of the century, which is anthropology. And I think the effect of a, of a minimized view of the image of God is seen all over society from gender confusion to marriage confusion, even to embarrassment within our own denomination about what God has called men and women to. Uh, we're a NAM church plant. I'm a part of the Sojourn Network. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again is people who are complementarian by title, but are terrified of actual verses, Bible verses, to say what God clearly says uh, to men and women. And, and so in Reenchant Humanity, you identify a problem. And one of the things that I've seen when my wife was newly, uh, just a new mother, our six-year-old boy on Instagram, we saw this mom culture popping up like crazy on Instagram about self-care and self-love. And I saw over the years, the self-help help movement move into the self-love movement and the self-care movement. And I think some ladies were out in front of this identifying, wait a minute, something's off here. And uh, Rachel Jankovic had the Department of Hell No thing that was going on a couple years ago on Instagram where she identified uh, terrible anthropology coming from from mom bloggers and mom Instagram people like crazy. Um, Ali Bastucki has a new book coming out for women, a new book that came out uh, uh, and specifically addressed the you're, you're enough uh, mom culture kind of stuff. And she said, you're not enough and that's okay. Jesus is enough. So ad- ad- addressing that. There hasn't been a whole lot that I have seen anyways that have done what you have done and said, this is the issue. This is the issue, not just in academia, not just in the church and the world anthropology is the issue. How did you come to the conclusion that anthropology is the issue of the day? And then please tell me about your work with Reenchanting Humanity and about the three new books that you just released this year. Ooh, okay. I'm going to try. Yeah, there's a lot. I'm sorry. I'm you, you got into my, uh, into my little nest of issues here. And, and that's a dangerous thing to do. As you know, I can tell you're thinking very deeply about these things yourself. So praise God for that. Yeah, I think, I think what has happened is that, uh, frankly, there is a lot of talk among women about how to care for women and how to be a kind of uh, well-functioning woman. I'm talking just in general, not even in the Christian world, but there's not that same attention, really, in much of the masculine world. Yes, that's good. So men tend to either burn themselves down uh, you know, drink themselves to death tragically over their failings, 
or they tend to go towards something like hedonism or something like this, or they, or they retreat to a, a Reddit thread or a message board or something and sort of opt out of society. But men don't normally do this kind of self-esteem culture, which is a fascinating thing to think through that's worthy of an entire podcast in itself, Jared, mm -hmm. over how women respond to challenge and stress in mm -hmm. 2020 and how men do. Yeah. Uh, even without any coaching or training, they do it differently, the sexes do. Um, that's one quick thought there. Men also in evangelical contexts tend to get torn down at least some of the time and women tend to be praised, even in, mm -hmm. let's say, reformed, conservative, evangelical context. So preachers tend, a number of people have observed this, Aaron Wren and others, that mm -hmm. preachers tend to punch very hard at men and tend to go quite soft, to pull their punch, really, with women. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to say there. In truth, men need a charge. Men need a kick. Uh, men need someone to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, let's go, you know, shape up, these sorts mm -hmm. of things. But men also need love. Men also need training. Men also need care. Men also need discipleship, especially would be the best word I, I could use to sum these things up, just as women do. It's mm -hmm. not that women need a uh, close, one-on-one, -on -one, personal, meaningful discipleship, and men were just going to throw them in a room, fry up some bacon, and yell at them. No, no, no. we're going to challenge men. We're going to call them out of boyishness. Absolutely, we're going to do, do so unapologetically, but we're not going to do so as if they're not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lot good. to say there. That gets to the first part of what you're saying. To the second part, why anthropology? I don't know why exactly, Jared, but here's what I can say. In the 60s and 70s, the death of God was very hot. And mm -hmm. that bled all the way into the aughts, you know, 15 years ago or so. The new atheism was in vogue and was all the rage. And the death of God was still being talked about. And, and Dawkins and Hitchens and others were dominating headlines because of their atheist ideas. The new atheism has has gone away effectively. I don't know where it went, but it's lost a ton of steam. Right. What has replaced it in the public square and in Western culture is the drive to re-envision the human person from roughly 727 different angles. Yeah. And so if you're paying attention, it's not that atheism has, has altogether evaporated. I don't mean that. It's gonna be a perennial issue in our culture and it's directly connected to the death of man, as I call it, the death of a meaningful doctrine of humanity is made in the image of God, in particular from Genesis 1 mm -hmm. in the Bible. These two things are directly connected. But what is hot now is the LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. What is hot now is critical race theory, intersectionality, social justice, uh, self-affirmation, therapeutic formulations. Mm -hmm. These things are hot now. And they're all part of what I call in my book, Re-Enchanting Humanity, a neo-pagan world. We're putting a lot on the table here, but I'll wrap up with this and then go back to you. A neo-pagan worldview is in general, a worldview that emphasizes that everything is one. There isn't distinction. The great Dutch theologian called the creator-creature distinction, drawing from Kuiper, Bavink, and others in particular. Mm -hmm. There's not a distinction. The creator didn't yep. make the creation. It didn't make the human creature as the head of that creation for Genesis 1 and 2. No, everything is one. This mm -hmm. dovetails with an evolutionary framework. 
Everything right. has evolved from gas and everything still is one and there are no meaningful distinctions and the sexes are not made with a creation order and there is not authority in the world that should be obeyed out of the overflow of obeying ultimate divine authority. No, everything is sameness. Mm -hmm. Anyone who would therefore attempt to delineate distinctions between human beings or species or what have you is therefore doing a kind of violence to the human person. And this in turn means that there are no there are no oughts, there are no rules to sexual conduct, for example, and the two are directly connected, you end up with end principle of society not being about salvation, but about being affirmation. Yeah. And that's where we are today. Exactly. So one of the questions I have for you, and one of the things I've admired from afar is that you have, you're, you're an academic with a backbone. You're not looking to be buddy-buddy with the world. Public witness is not your modus operandi. You're not living to see the world praise you. So you've got some people that don't, you have some haters and I admire that. Why is it that we are terrified, even as a Southern Baptist convention or evangelicals in general, why is it that we are taking the world's route to this? Why are we embarrassed of biblical anthropology? Well, the culture is putting tremendous heat on us. The, the culture is throwing a high inside fastball against us for, for so much of what we stand for switching the metaphor also along athletic lines, we're in the cultural penalty box for just about anything we affirm. Mm -hmm. Christians, <sighs> Christians feel tremendous pressure, Jared, to demonstrate the reasonableness of Christianity to them. Yeah. It's not a bad instinct to mm -hmm. show that the doctrines of the faith yeah. uh, are rational, understood in the right way. It's not a bad it's not a bad if you frame it carefully, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, that's not our first move, actually. I'm yep. with Van Til on this. I don't agree with him on everything, but I'm with the Christian church's primary platform being not us hearing the world have a conversation and saying fundamentally, oh, we have the same value. Yep. We share that. Right. We even use that same term. Let's together use that term, and you'll understand that I'm not that wacko fundamentalist bad right. kind of Christian. Mm -hmm. I'm the good kind of Christian who actually commends Christ by my gracious, plugged-in, fun demeanor. And so you don't have to fear me. I, I have the edges sanded off of my Christianity. Right, I exactly. Am, I am for... <laughs> I'm for a different understanding of the Christian faith, not one that tries to be as offensive as possible. I believe in Ephesians 4.15, that I should be speaking the truth in love as just one example. And yeah. yet, I believe actually that my first duty is to live according to the lordship of King Jesus. And I believe that my first task apologetically and therefore culturally is not to show you how I'm like you. Yeah. It's Amen. to show you how I'm unlike you. Mm -hmm. as an unbeliever, not because I'm better than you, not because I'm ontologically superior to you, but because the Christian faith has gripped me and I have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ for my salvation. And I have been saved by divine grace given through justifying faith. And I am now a new creation, again, not because of my inherent goodness, but yeah. because of God's grace, the same grace that is now offered to you and the same grace that results in not just a different formulation of salvation, this little one minute thing you need to recite to, to get that door opened up to heaven. Mm -hmm. No, the, the grace of God has birthed an entire cosmos claiming worldview. 
Yeah. And this is the true worldview. Mm-hmm. And you see glimpses of this true worldview and you bump up against it and you're experiencing what we call common but you're only brushing up against it. You need to buy the entire thing and then you will truly live. Are there terms that you use that I also use? Yes, there are. But when you're talking about justice and I'm talking about justice, we may interface in different places, but we mean fundamentally different things because I mean theistic justice and you mean something different. Yeah, I think we need some real work. And you mentioned Van Til. We need some Van Tilian thought and Kyperian thought brought to layman's terms into the public square for the church to be prepared. I think two kingdom theology, I think the feminization of society since the second great awakening on really could be argued that we have, and even missional ideas like the missional church over the last 25 years, we have been so ill prepared for 2020 because we have been teaching this missional evangelism kind of stuff for 20 years and are absolutely terrified and don't have a frame of reference of how to be a prophetic voice to a society or even to the church, even to our people. And so, Dr. Strain, I I preached a sermon at the end of 2018 that lit a fire in me. And I think this is why, this is why when we find men like this, I think why people are being drawn to Moscow, Idaho, why people are being drawn down to founders, why people appreciate you. I preached this sermon from Luke chapter 9 a couple years ago, and it really changed things for me. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. In other words, Christians don't have the option of being ashamed by the word of God. It's just not an option. And when we find people who aren't actually ashamed, they're not embarrassed and they're not apologizing and they're not caveating it away, there's a group of, of men in particular, I think, that are turning their head and saying, wait a minute, I want some of that. Because we're tired mm-hmm. of seeing uh, apologists, we're t- tired of seeing seminaries, we're tired of seeing pastors we know, we're tired of being slimy men ourselves that are looking to the world and saying, no, really, we're cool. I promise we're Christians and we, we have really good things to say. Please like us. And so what's the way out? I mean, is it, is it a belief, practical belief in the sufficiency of scripture? Is it more and more men standing up and being on the offense rather than the defense? What's the path forward? The only path forward is through conviction. Uh, I think you're dead right. I think men in particular flock to conviction where they see it. I think a previous generation thought mistakenly that some of why so many people were flocking to them was because they were cool. Mm -hmm. When I was coming up in seminary, perhaps you to some degree, um, it was, it was what you wanted to be. You wanted to be cool. You wanted to draw a crowd. You also wanted the conviction. Well, look, the cool factor of Christianity has basically burned off. Right. It didn't have very long in that, in that span, however long that was it's burned off. Now being a Christian again, is a minus 250 rather than any kind of plus factor, okay, for just about everybody out there. And so what this means is that we're going to have to lead with conviction. The good news is that God has ordered his kingdom so that his sheep hear the voice of Jesus Christ and run to it. Not us. It's not our good arguments. It's not our cleverness. It's not our heroism in, in ourselves. It's all Jesus. And so the sheep where the word is being faithfully proclaimed according to, yes, the doctrine of scriptural sufficiency, absolutely. Where the sheep hear the voice of Christ, they flock. Mm-hmm. And how tragic that, that so many of us in different instances, pastors more, uh, more extremely who lose their ministry, we think it's us at yeah. some level that the sheep are coming to. Oh, it's mm-hmm. me and my personality or me and this, that, the other thing. 
in most cases, many cases, at least in a solid context, maybe not an attractional context as much, although even there people are looking for a man of conviction and finding as much as they can. But certainly in not that context, where it is a truth-driven context, mm -hmm. a gospel-driven context, rightly understood, it's not us. Yeah, amen. They're not drawn to us. We may yeah. have gifts or we may not have them. We may be a five-tool player. We may not be. But I am telling you, Jared, I believe firmly that people are in, are in, are in truth drawn to conviction mm -hmm. and to love for God and to unflinching following of Jesus Christ. And so the good news is that where we raise that banner up, even in a hostile culture, uh, even in, yes, a somewhat compromised evangelicalism in different spheres, people will come as yeah. God moves. That, that is a promise, and I believe we can, we can take it to the bank. Amen. That's good. Well, I wish we had some more time here. There's a lot more that I think we could talk about, and I would like to ask you, but I want to give you some time to talk about your the three books. And if people, uh, I know we mentioned it earlier, but but talk about your three books that, that came out, and then tell us where we can find them. And then uh, also, if, if anybody else is interested, why don't you go ahead and tell us where we can find more of your work? And uh, they already know that you're at Midwestern, but why don't you uh, bring us up to speed? And I was curious if those three books were just an outworking of reenchanting humanity into more of a, you know, uh, the, the pew-sitting, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church member. Uh, tell us about that, that work and what motivated you to do it, and then where we can find more information about you. Yeah, thank you. You're on to me. You're definitely on to me, because I wrote Reenchanting Humanity, which is the 400 plus page, 600 footnote crack at anthropology, a doctrine of humanity in one volume. Um, and then I realized with Gavin Peacock, my friend, who's a very strong voice on manhood and on complementarity, uh, played almost 20 years English soccer, many years in the Premier League, captain of Chelsea. Anyway, he's a pastor now in Calgary and, and we're friends and we share such a burden for these issues. So we got got together and we realized we should break it down, frankly, on three specific issues. What does the Bible teach about lust? What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And what does the Bible teach about transgenderism? So we just published that biblical sexuality trilogy, we call it, a trilogy of short books uh, with Christian focus. It came out in May, so they just came out. And so there's, there's four resources that in God's grace I've been able to publish in the last year. And uh, that is my very humble attempt at trying to help the church understand our doctrine of humanity, and then specifically with the three books on sexuality, our doctrine of sexuality, because nowhere probably today, aside from possibly these discussions of justice, race, these kind of things, is to do a fusionist theology than on sexuality, to say, oh, okay, well, there's the, there's the arch-right anti-homosexual people, mm -hmm. and then there's the far-left pro-gay people, I'm going to find, I understand Jesus is always kind of striking this elegant, symbiotic third way, and I'm going to be the third way where I can affirm uh, biblical Christianity, but I also affirm gay Christianity in, in a certain formulation, mm -hmm. and so, or, or, or uh, Christian transgenderism or something like this, and so what Gavin and I are trying to say with our trilogy, and what I also say in Reenchanting Humanity, mm -hmm. is that there is no such third way. Amen. There is either Christ, as Piper said, there's either Christ or the idols. There is, yeah, yeah. There is either Christianity or ultimately there is paganism. And yep. yes, there's some confusion in the middle because we have to sort out tough issues. Absolutely, there's confusion for us only. It all shakes down and it is either the living God or the gods of this age. Yes. Yeah. Third way I, ideology is, is typically 
the seed of liberalism. It's just a matter of time. And, and, and typically it's, its motive is not obedience to God, but, but some sort of even benevolent desire for a good face in the public, a desire for evangelism or something like that. Fantastic stuff. Um, Can I elaborate on that point you just raised? Absolutely. I think that's really important, Jerry, what you just said, because people aren't just happening into a third way position mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And there are some issues that, frankly, faithful Christianity may be in that third way position. Mm -hmm. So let that be said. But when that's always your, your place, it does make me start to wonder. And it's often motivated by the view that I need to not be extreme on this issue mm -hmm. because I'm trying to win a hearing for the gospel on this side. Right. So frankly, there can be, at least on the surface, a positive evangelistic and apologetic missiological, as you mentioned earlier, motive mm -hmm. that, hey, sure, all things being equal, we love to see that. We don't want to see more bitter Christians who don't share their faith. Mm -hmm. We want to see more godly Christians, joyful Christians who do share their faith. Right. But the way, the way to win people to Christ, I'm, I'm convinced, though I am no great soul winner myself, is not to say, okay, okay, I will water down my doctrine over here. I'll soften the edges over here so that I can, so that I can win you over here. Yeah. I believe, again, as we've touched on, I believe we present the whole counsel of God. We present the whole worldview of God. We present the gospel of Jesus Christ at the burning center. And we leave God to sort it out. The amazing thing, Jared, is that this faith that we get really nervous about, mm -hmm. the hard edges, I shouldn't define manhood. I shouldn't talk about submission to a husband. Um, I, I, I shouldn't get into what it means to follow your elders. Mm -hmm. Those edges are actually what people are most looking for someone to articulate. Yeah. My doctrine of race, if I talk about one human race instead of this social construction of race and then whiteness as the chief evil of the of the day uh then people will i'll lose a hearing no no, no. people are actually looking for the biblical doctrine of race they don't know Man. they are yep they need you to articulate that they need you to unpack that in truth there is only one human race in adam and mm -hmm. there is one redeemed humanity in christ yep. that's the good news the good news isn't something you can find in a in a critical theory textbook, the good news is, or, or some kind of third way platform, the good news is rock solid biblical Christianity that is proclaimed in love. That, that's what I believe is, is the program going forward. I agree. That's good. Okay. For the sake of time, this is going to be your hardest question yet. You got one minute. Okay. So you're on the timer. Owen Strand, why do you love Jesus so much? I love Jesus so much because as Jonathan Edwards so powerfully expressed, drawing from scripture, Revelation 5 and other texts, he is the lion and lamb. And so there is this beautiful conjunction, as Edwards terms it, in Jesus Christ of the, the lowest lowliness, but of the greatest exaltation. Jesus is the one who is the warrior savior who goes and faces down the enemy and destroys him. He destroys him by his blood. The mm. lion is the lamb. And the lamb is the lion. And so I find in that conjunction of excellencies that the Bible brings out and then Edwards harvests a beautiful picture of the uniqueness, the superlative uniqueness of Christ that shows really what we've been talking about throughout. That Jesus isn't a savior like the others, hmm. but a little bit better.
Jesus is an altogether unique Savior, the warrior <laughs> Savior. Amen. That's so good. Well, I've been talking to Dr. Owen Strand. Dr. Strand, thanks so much for coming on the show. Jared, thank you for having me. It's been a great convo. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.